0: You're listening to 101.9 Haifem. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Nice to be with you on this Monday morning. And uh, looking forward to a jam-packed show uh, as we go and uh, look at what is going on around the world in the Jewish sense of the word. Uh, as I said, very, very lots. Can you say very lots? I don't think you really can. Uh, tons of stuff coming up on the show. We're going to be talking about Jews, Khazars, and genetics, if you know what that's all about. Very interesting topic there. We're also going to be checking in with APAC, the uh, American Israeli Public Affairs Committee. And then later on, at about half past nine, we are speaking to Brian Bloom. And he is an author. He writes about tech and he writes about um, anything to do with the startup nation, basically. And he's written a new book called Totaled. uh, And it's all about the better place project now if you might know better place uh it is uh uh a a very interesting story of a of a uh car company basically uh that that was trying to go electric and they went under so we'll be getting to them at half past nine uh and uh talking to them and finding out uh with brian bloom about uh, his book that he's written and uh and and what it was that better place was and, and and how it kind of didn't succeed. So anyway, so so that is that is what we're what we're going to be doing. If you want to be part of the show, you can always SMS us 34519, email us on at um uh, tweet us at, at @hfm or, email, uh, or uh, WhatsApp us oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine. Uh, and we will uh, we will happily uh, have a chat to you from talk to music from Johannesburg to Israel from sport to business. This is one one point nine high FM one one point nine high FM. So first story for today is around the idea of Jews, genetics, and Khazars. Now, what am I talking about? So, I went to go listen to a very interesting talk last night, actually, the second time that I've been to a uh, talk by a guy by the name of Scott Hazelhurst, Dr. Scott Hazelhurst, Professor uh, Scott Hazelhurst, and he works in the Sydney Brenner Institute at uh, Witz University. And basically, he's a geneticist, so he does all of these genetic studies, mostly looking at uh, genetics for the the purposes of seeing how we can look to solve genetic uh, diseases and how we can uh, make people well uh, in that way to try and see what diseases we can find uh, in people 's genetics so, so that we can help them early on as as uh, doctors and people, but he also has a specialized interest in population uh, dynamics and uh, where do different populations come from, and how basically we as humans are all connected to one another using using our genetics. And he's done a specific study on, on, uh, on genetics that are associated uh, with, with Jewish people. And it was a fascinating talk and it was a whole hour long. So there's no real way that uh, I could summarize it up, but uh, I, uh, if you get a chance to speak to him, uh, if he maybe speaks at Limwood again uh, this year, which is where I first heard him last year, it's definitely someone who I would uh, recommend uh, d- uh, going to talk to, or listen to rather, because he is very, very interesting uh, and and really breaks down some of the science that uh, goes behind genetics, which is obviously quite complicated. But he breaks it down so that you can understand it and uh, really, uh, you know, really get a sense. About what's going on, and I wanted to bring one one aspect that he spoke about last night at this talk, um, and and chat to chat to you about it, so that everybody uh, you know can maybe be a little bit more informed about certain aspects. And the one that I wanted to talk about is this idea of Khazars and Jews. Now, if you are on the internet long enough or you get into enough arguments on the internet on issues about Israel and Jews or whatever, eventually this particular issue is going to come out. And what am I talking about? So there's a whole theory, call it a conspiracy theory, um, call it a argument, whatever, that Particularly Ashkenazi Jews, in other words, Jews that came from Europe, uh, particularly we know around the 10th century they were, existed as a group in Europe, and and uh, they were an important part of the Zionist movement in getting Israel back up and running as a country after 2,000 years. And what you'll often find is when people can't make the argument uh, about Israel properly, well, they go, they, they'll say something along the lines of, well, uh, Jews that live in Israel are not real Jews. They are Ashkenazi who are just these European Jews. So they're colonialists, uh, that kind of nonsense. But their big argument that they always like to use is that, um, the Ashkenazim are not descended from people who came out of the Levant, out of Israel. Uh, they're rather descendant from people in Europe and this. And so therefore the claim goes that if they're just Europeans and they don't belong in the middle East, and you know, I'm sure you can understand the rest. So, where does this claim come from? So, basically, historically, we don't know too much about them, but historically, there seems to have been a kingdom in the sort of Caucasus, Central Europe, just beneath Russia area, uh, called the Khazar Kingdom. And the Khazars were a pagan group, and they lived there in, in that Central European area for a few hundred years, and they had a powerful kingdom in that area. And uh, they they were a pagan kingdom, and they had a lot of uh, problematic enemies. They fought with the Byzantine Empire and some of the Muslim empires and the Russians and a number of others. They were quite a warlike people. And we we know uh, historically that there may have been a conversion of Khazars at some point, where... At least some of the people in the Khazar community Whether it was the nobles or the kings um, Perhaps even all of them Nobody really knows That the Khazars Converted to Judaism Uh, And no one is particularly sure why they did this Or how they did this A lot of it has been lost in the sands of times Because the Khazars as a community Disappeared uh, after about The 12th century the kingdom fell And was taken over by By Russians And and, and what the theory goes in terms of these people who, who promote this Khazar theory is that the Khazars were – the conversion of the Khazars, rather, was the basis of Ashkenazi Jewry. And therefore, as I explained about the whole thing, the Khazars were the Ashkenazim and the Ashkenazim came back to Israel and therefore they're white people and blah, blah, blah. So you get the point. Now, getting back to Scott Hazelhurst's lecture. What was interesting is he was talking about the the genetics of this whole thing, and what he was explaining was that there's definitely, if you look at the male uh, the male side of Ashkenazi um, uh, genetics, and I'm obviously simplifying it quite a lot because we don't have time to explain it, and maybe I will get Scott to come in and and, and talk to us on the radio about it. But on the sort of male side, of, of Ashkenazi Jewry, you can in fact trace the genetics of Ashkenazi Jews all the way back to uh, Israel and the Levant 2,000 years ago and more. Uh, in, in other words, around the time that uh, the first temple fell and the, uh, the Babylonians started spreading people around the world. And so there is a direct genetic component which which shows that uh, the the male side of the Ashkenazi or a lot at least a large chunk of it comes from Israel now the interesting thing from a genetics perspective that he was explaining he says that on the female side that's not as uh, prevalent he says there's definitely some uh, uh, Ele- Levantine or or Israeli or or Jewish not Jewish but uh basically that, that Asia, Middle East region uh, genetics from the female side, but there is also a lot from southern Italy. And so as opposed to the Khazar theory, which says that the Jews sort of converted um, in that area and be, and became the Ashkenazim, he was posting a different theory. And what he was saying was uh, uh, there is something called the, the, the Italian theory or the southern European theory, which says that actually Ashkenazim may have come uh, from a period when people were moving out of Israel uh, because of the Babylonians or just because of trade or whatever it was, and moving to the nearest coastline, which would have been southern Europe at the time. And when they got there, obviously uh, you didn't always take that many women with you when you were doing trading, it was mostly men. And so they had some women with them, but but they would have converted uh, women that were in the, in the, in the local community and that formed the nucleus of the community. And then due to anti-Semitism and other kinds of, of maybe other trading issues, this group moved up, uh, through Europe and into what we now, uh, call the Rhineland or Germany. And then from there into Poland, and he was posting this as an alternative theory, where he said uh, the genetics show that uh, that this idea that the Jews are not from uh, uh, the Levant region at all, that they were somehow transplanted, uh, is genetically false, and uh, and and we shouldn't uh, take the the Khazar theory too seriously. So I thought that was an absolutely fascinating. Discussion and only one part of uh, a really interesting discussion about the genetics of the Jews. So that's uh, that story for today. We're going to take a a short break and we'll come back. Then we're going to be talking a little bit about what's going on at APAC. The best part of your day at the heart of your community. All the talk, all the music, all the news. (laughs) Hi 101.9. 101.9. Hi, fam. I'm Benji Shilman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome back to the program. And as you may know, this week is APAC week. Uh, APAC is the Af- uh, African American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, and they have their big conference every single year in America where they basically lobby members of uh, the U.S. Uh, Congress and the Senate on Israel-related issues and APAC is obviously one of the the most successful grassroots uh, lobby campaigns in, in America. They have a, a few thousand or hundred thousand members uh, who who are active members, and their uh, and and their conferences attract uh, tens of thousands of people every year from all different parts of of America, where they come to talk about uh, the American Israel relationship and. And where it's heading, and of course, it's a very important uh, venue. A lot of people uh, come to to do things, to hear things, and, and it's very interesting. I went last year, and, and people come from all over the place. Uh, people's schools, uh, they come from schools, they come from community organisations, uh, they come from uh, just. Uh, wherever uh, they are, because they believe that, that America and Israel should have a positive and strong relationship. And not just Jews. I met many members of the African American community, uh, many, many members of the Christian community. I met uh, Muslims. Uh, I see that uh, in, Some part of uh, America I'm not exactly sure where But uh, there is in fact The first congressman uh, Muslim congressman Who's running for congress Under the republican banner uh, Which is something that's never happened before There have have been Muslims who've run Under the democrat uh, banner Uh, I think there's two of them currently Two two Muslim congress uh, People, because I think the one is a woman Um, And and the first – so the first Republican uh, Muslim candidate for Congress seat is actually going to be at APAC. So you get all sorts of people who come to this policy forum. And the whole thing about APAC, and the whole thing about the American system is that people elect their congressmen directly. So there's an – unlike our system where we go out and we vote for the ANC or the DA or the EFF uh, or the ACDP or whoever uh, – here, you actually vote for a person in your district, so uh, someone is responsible for a whole area, and then they get voted for, and and so you can actually talk directly to the person who represents you in a given area, and what they've managed to do with APAC, uh, along with the senators who represent states, is actually lobby various people, it doesn't matter whether they're Democrats or Republicans, just doesn't... They don't care about your political affiliation. All they're interested in doing is improving the relationship between uh, Africa, <coughs> excuse me, America, and Israel. So, what is on the agenda for AIPAC this year? Because obviously, Trump uh, does make some things easier and some things more difficult because AIPAC likes to get everyone around the table, the, the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, and, and get them to agree on things, which is obviously very difficult in America at the moment. So uh, It's uh, interesting to see What is on their a- agenda So one of the big ones Security assistance uh, AIPAC wants to get Congress uh, To co- codify the 38 billion dollars Over 10 years guaranteed to Israel um, uh, 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 Under the Obama administration And AIPAC wants the House of Representatives uh, To authorize expenditure for 5 years So that uh, people can actually start paying for things And um, uh, so, and apparently there isn't a proper way to get this funded yet. And so, a Republican and a Democrat have uh, just come back from a, a tour, and they've been uh, uh, of arguing to create a vehicle so that that money can get paid. Of course, Iran very, very high on the agenda as usual. Uh, APEC wants more sanctions on Iran, particularly targeting the Iranian Revolutionary. Guard Corps, which is one of the key entities that's responsible for Iran's military interventions in places like Syria uh, and Iraq. And uh, they also want to lower the sanctions uh, triggering um, triggering others excuse me, lowering the sanctions floor so there's there's certain kinds of um, flags if something happens then, then a sanction can be implemented. They want to lower some of uh, those. And of course, the Iran deal is very much on on the agenda. Uh, Donald Trump obviously has concerns about the Iran deal, and uh, they want to strengthen the deal. Um, and uh, of course, there are the Republicans who just want to remove it uh, in general. There's also the issue of BDS. Uh, AIPAC is looking at a, a host of bills in both the Senate and uh, the, the the House of Representatives. That's the uh, the Congress people, where that would target the BDS movement, um, especially over a UN issue where the UN wants to name companies that are operating in uh, the, the Palestinian territories and, and target them for for boycott. So uh, they want to try and make American laws that would make that uh, very difficult. BB will be talking to the conference, um, and he's also going to meet with Trump while he's there, and of course I'm sure we will have uh, a lot of <coughs> talk about the peace plan, Jared Kushner's peace plan, which has become a little bit more complicated since uh, there's been some issues in the White House. Uh, we, we, I don't know if Trump himself is going to be talking, uh, but yeah, that is uh, what is going on. They also apparently will be having a uh, village in in APAC, which is going to include a simulated flight on an f 35, uh, which so that's uh, a representation of the Iron Dome. You can check out what the Iron Dome does, uh, or even a bunch of clown doctors from Israel that go around uh, all around the world and uh, and help uh, kids feel uh, more happy and relaxed, uh, as well as Is- the Israeli Guide Dogs Association. So all sorts of stuff happening at APAC, very, very interesting um, um organization and one that does a lot of good work in strengthening the America Israel relationship and something we can all learn a lot from. So that is the APAC uh, aspect. We're gonna take a short break and we're coming back we're gonna be talking to Brian Bloom. Stay
1: relevant and up to High FM.
0: You're listening to 101.9 High FM I'm Benji Shulman and this is the new boo review. Welcome the program now if you might remember a few years ago there was a very audacious plan uh, by an israeli guy to get the world off of oil and how did he want to do that he wanted to create a proper grid of electric cars and he created a company it was called better place where he decided that he was going to rid the world of of oil dependency by creating electric cars and He was going to start off by doing this in Israel and then going all around the world. And he made huge waves. He raised nearly a billion dollars in funding. uh, And then it all kind of fell apart, even though there was all this hype and all this interest. And uh, a guy, he is a tech reporter in Israel, has decided to write this story up uh, so that people can understand what it means to fail when it comes to a startup because we often hear about the successes uh, and also uh, you know what it means to really trace one's dream uh, and uh, and try and change the world and how it sometimes is successful and sometimes isn't so uh, i'm very happy to have on the show today brian bloom who is the author of the book totaled uh, talking us today how's it brian how you doing welcome to the new blue review thank you benji nice nice to be here so, first of all, give us a context. Uh, Shai Agassi, he's the founder of Better Place. Why did he decide that he wanted to to go for this thing in the first place?
1: Uh, Shai Agassi is is one of the most creative and charismatic and powerful entrepreneurs I think Israel has, has ever seen. He, he really could, you know, sell. You know, as Thomas Friedman once put it, he could sell. Um, uh, I think uh, oil to the Saudi Arabians or car- uh, camels to the Saudi Arabians. He's a very, very um, fascinating guy. And he was an executive, he had uh, sold some companies, and he was an executive at SAP, the large software infrastructure company. And he was also a part of a group called the Forum of Young Global Leaders that met at Davos, Switzerland, part of the World Economic Forum. And they were charged every year with trying to to do something big in the world. And and the charge that year was to figure out what, some way to make the world a better place. And Shai Agassi, the entrepreneur here, um, felt that the best way to sort of move the needle on on climate change and the environment and things that could really make the world a better place was to try to move cars away from gasoline powered cars to electric powered cars. and they worked on a plan and they worked with some Stanford students to uh, he and a partner to to build this plan up and wound up uh, raising all this money and getting uh, a whole bunch of people involved. Uh, and and it really was, you know, coming out of the best motivations to to really make, you know, a, a better future for our children, you know, with a cleaner environment, you know, less dependency, certainly for Israel on foreign, you know, oil manufacturers and foreign powers. Uh, and so it was really incredibly exciting uh, back in 2007 when it got started. Now, one
0: of the interesting parts about better places that they thought that they would, if you'll forgive the expression, test drive this idea uh, in, in Israel. What was the basis behind that decision? Were they, was he just being patriotic or was there other factors involved?
1: Yeah, it, there definitely was a patriotic aspect because uh, it could have started anywhere. In fact, the company was uh, founded in Silicon Valley, not in Israel, although R&D, you know, quickly moved to Israel. And uh, but but We are an island here in Israel, and that made a lot of sense for the Better Place model. Now, what do I mean by an island? We're not an island, but we are surrounded on all sides by, by borders. You know, we've got the Mediterranean on one side, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt. So we can't really drive outside the boundaries of the state of Israel. Now, the Better Place model was, how can we get past what has been A real gating factor for electric cars, which is what we call in the business range anxiety. And that's the fear that you're going to be driving and you're going to run out of electricity somewhere in the middle of nowhere. There's not going to be a charging spot or a station or anything like that. So how can you allow, you know, a car to go anywhere? And this based on the technology that existed in 2007 when the company started. And at that point, you know, electric cars couldn't go. Three, four hundred kilometers like a Tesla or a GM or, you know, today's modern electric cars can go. They could go about a hundred kilometers, maybe 120 kilometers maximum. So that, that meant that you really couldn't go very far from your home charging spot. So the better place idea was let's put battery switching stations all over the, the country. So every 100, 120 kilometers, if you needed to keep going, you wouldn't have to plug in and wait for the car to charge. You would drive into this, this station, look kind of like a gas station or a car wash. Your car would get lifted up on a platform. A robot would come in underneath the car, take the spent battery out and put a brand new filled in battery in and in five minutes You'd be up and r- up and running and on you go. And now the reason I say all that is in Israel, you could cover the entire country with just 42 stations. You could go everywhere from Jerusalem to the Golan to Elat to Tel Aviv. And, and, and you can't do that in a vast territory like the United States.
0: And technology was actually a big part of the whole selling point of Better places. It wasn't just the switching stations, which were a little bit uh, high-tech to begin with. The whole basis was that they would be able to track uh, the electricity. You'd be able to track uh, how much kilometrage you, you still had to drive. So actually, technology was a key point in trying to sell the electric cars as a differentiator from from petrol cars.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The uh you know when you have an electric car and you're worried about running out of out of juice, having the sophisticated uh, um, software on your dash in your car, they called it Oscar, which stands for operating system for cars. Oscar, so everybody just called it Oscar. It's not Oscar the Grouch from Sesame Street, but you know Oscar. And Uh, the 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 screen would tell you exactly what your charge was you know it's monitoring the car it would tell you where the next you know battery switching station was or the next charge spot and and if you needed to get there it would actually plot your route on the gps on the screen and take you there and you could set up an entire trip you know as i say you want to go to you know the north in uh, you know Kiryat <clears throat> Shmona, it would tell you this is the route you need to go. Here's where the switching stations are. Here's how much time it's going to take. That part was very very cool. Now there were other aspects that were also part of the technology that were very cutting edge. For example, imagine that the the grid, the electrical grid, is 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 going to overload because like everybody's plugging in their cars at once and the air conditioners are all running. It's the summer and the washing machines and the lights. And the the system could kind of titrate, you know, how much energy was going into the car, you know, and how much. So, you know, if you're plugged in, you know, let's say it work and, you know, it's going to take, you know, six or seven hours to get to a full charge. But, you know, that there's all these other demands in the system. So maybe the system would only give you 80 percent instead of 100 percent by the end of that period in order not to have the entire grid fall. That was part of the system as well.
0: So there a lot of technology, and they tested it out in Israel, but and it quickly spread. Uh, it went to a number of other countries where they were also now suddenly trying Better Place. Where
1: else did it go? So Better Place had operations in Denmark, where they actually built another 18 stations and uh, had that working. They had a uh, a pilot plan for... A battery switchable taxi that went between Schiphol airport in the Netherlands to Amsterdam, and that would go back and forth. They had operations in China. They had a demonstration center in China, and they had plans to do partnerships with Chinese uh, utilities they had a pilot program for another switchable taxi uh, system in Tokyo, Japan. In fact, the very first uh uh switching station, you know, in the world was debuted in Yokohama, Japan because the Japanese government wanted to see if they could prove that they could move their their fleet from uh, gasoline-powered cars to electric cars. Uh, and of course there was operations in Hawaii and in Canada and in Silicon Valley. And, and 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 offices all over europe it was really a global company which some some in some ways tripped them up because there was a lot of money and attention being spent in different directions and, uh, and maybe it might have made more sense to just focus on Israel and or Denmark and not go everywhere else.
0: Well, we're going to be talking uh, about that uh, in just coming up after this. You're listening to 101.9. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. We're talking today to Brian Bloom. He's just written a book called Totaled uh, about the rise and fall of the Better Place Company. We'll be back just after this. A frequency like no other. 101.9 F M. One 101.9 high, FM. 101.9 high FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. We're talking today to Brian Bloom. Uh, he has written a book called Totaled, about the rise and fall of Better Place, an electric car company based in Israel. And uh, if you're listening to us live, you can SMS us, 34519, or, or WhatsApp us, 0618951019, uh, and we'll happily take any questions you might have for brian uh brian so they try to go all over the world and obviously you don't want to give away the whole book but what actually then went wrong because it actually sounds like they had got quite
1: far down the road um yeah and before i actually tell you what went wrong i just want to tell you a personal story about how i got into this and 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 then you'll see why it became such a passion for me to find out what went wrong so we actually were not, you know, enormous electric car fans. We didn't plan on, you know, buying an electric car. It was actually the summer of 2012. My family and I were looking for something to do on an August afternoon with the kids. We'd, we'd done everything else. We'd been to the beach and the movies and the zoo. And and Better Place had this amazing visitor center set up in uh, Load, which is just uh, south of Herzliya, north of Tel Aviv, and uh, they were offering a movie and test drives, and we thought, well, that's a fun afternoon outing. Let's let's go do that, and um, we did. We all test drove the car, the the adult drivers, and we we fell in love. We fell in love with this car like on the spot. It was so powerful and and quiet and green, and we you know within two weeks we had put. Our money down on the car. Now, uh, you know that's not like me. I, I usually, as a, as a technology and business journalist, I do incredible amounts of research. I do my due diligence. I investigate things. But in this case, I just put the money down, and, and it literally, is like a you know a love a love affair. Within a month, before we even got our car, there was trouble in the company. The uh, CEO Shai Agassi, founder of the company, had been fired, and uh, and within another uh eight months or so the company was out of business entirely and and the journalist side of me said how did i miss that how did i how did i like get blinded and not you know realize something was going on in the company and and not know that how how did the, how did the entire press miss that and of course the press will say well we we saw it all along but but many people were taken in by the excitement and the hype so the book is a result essentially of me trying to figure out what i missed and now I can tell you what it is that I missed.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, b- before you, you do that, uh, I just like sort of on that point, uh, how difficult a book was it to research? I and mean, it sounds like there were a lot of characters, a lot of people to interview. Uh, w- were people like Shai Gassi prepared to talk to you on the record about what went wrong?
1: So I interviewed um, over 80 different people, former Better Place executives, car owners, investors, um and I, um, I spoke to, you know, you know, uh, enough people that I think I got the story right. I took about three and a half years to research and write. Um, Shai Gassi was not one of the people that I got a chance to speak to. We did speak, um, but he was very unsure about how a journalist would tell the story. He really wanted to write his own version of it, which, which hasn't come out yet. Uh, I, don't, I don't hear anything about that coming out. Uh, and he was afraid that I wouldn't be able to tell the story accurately. Uh, and he didn't want to you know, participate in that. And I tried to convince him, and I you know, had you know, a, a, you know, a number of emails and discussions, but I wasn't able to in the end. So uh, I got the story from all the other sides, but not from the, the man himself
0: very very interesting so so what went wrong from your your perspective
1: so there were many different things that went wrong uh, and the, the actual answer is a little bit kind of disappointing in a way. I mean, everybody wants to point a finger. You know, you have, you know, two Israelis, three opinions. And it was almost like a national pastime in Israel to try to figure out, you know, what sank Better Place. It was the government. It was Renault, the car manufacturer that Better Place worked with. It was uh, the chairman of the board, Idan Ofer, one of the richest men in Israel at the time, you know, who put in the first hundred million and then another hundred million. Or, you know, of course, it was the the... the the CEO, Shia Gassi, and I guess the real answer is, is actually kind of one that's common to all businesses. It just happened on, uh, on a bigger scale for better place. When you start a business, you have to put down a number of assumptions into your business plan. How much you think the car will cost, how many people will, will buy it, what the response will be, you know, what your costs will be. And this, this is normal. You put the assumptions into your spreadsheets and then you update it as it, as it goes along. Uh, And things always change. In Better Place's case, everything seemed to change. All of those assumptions they based the company on changed sometimes almost at once. And Better Place was, was constantly trying to play catch up, trying to figure out how to deal with these changes. And ultimately, the changes became too great for the company to compensate. So just to give you one, you know, one small example, the car was originally meant to be either free or inexpensive. That was the way that Shai Agassi sold it. That's the way he presented it on stage. It's going to be cheaper than a gasoline powered car. It might be free with a monthly subscription for electric miles or electric kilometers. But when the car came out, it cost the equivalent of about $35,000. Now, that sounds like a lot, certainly by you know U.S. terms. I'm not sure about it in South Africa. But in Israel, it actually is not that much. It's about the same price you would pay for a Toyota Corolla or a Mazda 3 or a, a Honda Civic. The problem was that people heard free or inexpensive. And when they heard $35,000, their first thoughts were, well, this company's trying to gouge me. It's greedy. It's, it's it, you know I'm not going to be a fryer. I'm not going to be a sucker and buy that thirty five thousand dollars car. I'll wait until the price comes down. Uh, that price was high, not because Better Place wanted it to be high, but that's the price they got from Renault, the manufacturer. Renault sold the car to Better Place for the equivalent of about thirty one thousand dollars, including all of the taxes that the government government put on. There was no room to to bring the price down to free or inexpensive, and that was a problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I guess price is is an issue. Uh, I'm trying to think in South African terms. It's probably uh, around 360,000 Rand. So that is, you know, I suppose it is standard price for a new car, uh, but it's still uh, expensive. Uh, And there were actually some South Africans involved with the project uh, as well, Brian.
1: Um, there were a number of South Africans who were uh, in the management and the key management of the company. Um, a gentleman named Sidney Goodman um, from South Africa originally was the head of Automotive Alliances for the company. Uh, uh, Shai Gossi's assistant, Debbie Kay, originally from South Africa. So, yeah, um, there the, it, there were people from all over. In fact, there was a, there was a major um, uh, out. Outpost of Better Place in Australia in Melbourne that was run by uh, a guy named Evan Thornley, um, and he eventually became the CEO after Shai Gassi, um was out of the company. Out of the company. Now they,
0: they sold a whole bunch of cars uh, already before the company failed. And uh, what happened to those people and their and their cars after the company collapsed? You mean people like me, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You had a car, now what?
1: So. Um, Interesting, the, uh, the drivers of these cars uh, did not want to give them up. There weren't that many of them. There were only about a thousand of us in Israel. And that's way below the, the, you know, the, originally they predicted they'd sell 14,000, you know, cars in the first year alone. Uh, and it dropped down to, you know, less than a thousand. But, um, we loved our cars. We didn't want to get rid of them. Uh, it's, it's funny. Even though we could no longer drive all over the country because the switch stations were closed, we could only, you know, first we could drive, you know, 120 kilometers. And then, you know, car batteries are like, you know, cell phone batteries or laptop batteries, they deteriorate over time, they become less, you know, they get less range. So first, we could drive to from Jerusalem, where I live to the airport, and then we could only drive to the city of Modi'in, and then we could only drive to the city of Beit Shemesh. And finally, it was a it was a city car. And even so, we still didn't want to get rid of the car, we wanted to keep it and drive it because we loved it so much. Remember, I told you it was a love affair, it still was four and a half years later. So a group of us sued Renault. We sued Renault not for our money back, but to get new batteries. We just wanted to get batteries that would give us the original 120 kilometers, or maybe they have next generation batteries that would be even better. And Renault said, well, we don't have any more batteries. We've, you know, we've shut down the project where, you know, they move manufacturing of the of the car, you know, to South Korea. You know, we're not going to send batteries all the way back from South Korea. And so finally, after, you know, really four and a half years since the company went out of business, they offered us a settlement. They, they agreed to pay us half of what we paid for the car originally, which is not bad after four and a half years. It's not a bad depreciation. And we thought, okay, well, we could keep the car, drive it, you know, only, you know, 20 miles or 20, you know, 30 miles before it runs out of juice, and then pay somebody to tow it away, or... We can take Renault's offer, and we took their offer, and now I drive a gasoline-powered car.
0: <laughs> Brian Bloom talking to us about his new book, Totaled, which talks about uh, the attempt to create uh, electric cars in Israel. We'll be back just after the break.
1: Connecting our community. She's life.
0: She's high. 101.9 High FM one point nine Kaifem, I'm Benji Schulman and this is the new Blue Review speaking today to Michael Bloom uh, about his book Totaled uh, which deals with uh, the rise and fall of the Better Place company now uh, you know Brian often in Israel we have this culture of the startup nation and everyone wants to be successful in 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 a startup and uh, bring technology to the world uh, you haven't written a book about that you've written a book about somebody failing uh, and, and not winning has that affected the reception that the book has, has got from the public?
1: Uh, yeah. you know when I first wrote the book and I pitched it to my uh, to my agent and, and she went out and pitched it to publishers uh, you know in New York uh, that was the first thing we heard is you know people don't want to read books about failure they want to read books about success uh, and so it was a hard sell to to just get this book published. Um, ultimately, you know, it did come out in print and ebook on Amazon and everywhere else, and and it's been selling very very well. Uh, but it, it, it's not what you would normally expect. Um, I think one of the successes of the book is that it's not written like a business book. It's not like you're you're reading it and, and getting lessons about, you know, what to do or what not to do. I mean, although those are in there as well. Really it's it's a it's a narrative. It's a who done it. You know, I kind of describe it as Agatha Christie meets Michael Lewis, you know, Michael Lewis who wrote books like The Undoing Project and Moneyball. You know, so there's there's that business sort of mystery element to it, but there's also like, you know, all along you know that's that the company is gonna die. So You know, you know, how did that happen? And it plays out in that kind of, you know, narrative way that you are their way. It's 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 kind of funny to say about a business book, but it's really it's really a page turner.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've read uh, I'm about a third through the book at the moment and it certainly isn't a difficult book to read. It's uh, very fluid uh, and you, you don't have to be a business person at all. And in fact, uh, I mean, I love the Better Place project when, when, I, when I first saw it. I didn't own a car but I definitely had some of those uh, Better Place stickers stuck up on my wall uh, and it, it was very cool for me and it, it brings back some of the excitement uh, around around the whole project. Uh, Brian, these days the, the electric car, the fat kid in the canoe is kind of Tesla, right? Uh, but do you think that Better Place actually contributed to the furthering of the industry in any way, even though it failed?
1: Ironically, by by putting out a model for a battery switch network, I think Better Place demonstrated that that actually is not what people want. Uh, you know, it, it, at the time, in, again, going back to 2007, it was the, really the only solution for providing Uh, You know the ability to go anywhere in the country and not worry about range anxiety. But batteries have gotten slightly better. The way that they put batteries into cars have gotten better, and and this is key. Tesla doesn't doesn't necessarily have a better battery than the Better Place battery, even though it can go three times as far. It's just that you know Tesla has more batteries. They have three times as much battery under that car, and it's arranged differently. It's you know underneath the car as opposed to in the trunk. But, but what we see is that because the Better Place switch station was not received, you know, that well, uh, you know, and we see then that, you know, plug in, you know, charge up in 45 minutes seems to be, you know, received better. I think the industry has moved beyond switch stations and is now really looking at, you know, you know, plug in charge, you know, on the spot as the way for better, for, for electric cars going, going forward. Now, to get there, we need, better batteries. Now, even Tesla does not have a solution that is, I think, you know, scalable and will move beyond really a niche. And and what I mean by that is that people want batteries that charge up in five minutes just like they, you know, they can go into a gas station and fill up and go on their way. And right now, even the best batteries take, you know, 30 to 40 minutes to get to a full charge if, they, if they're, you know, at a fast charge station and they're they're all done with the battery. And, you know, people have said, well, you know, you stop, you get a cup of coffee, you have a croissant or a Danish, you know, and then it's 40 minutes and you're on your way. Well, I can tell you that we didn't want to do that. We were driving somewhere. The idea of stopping for 45 minutes on our journey, not interested. When I get a new technology like an electric car, I wanna trade up. I don't wanna trade down. I want my technology to be more functional and more bells and whistles. So I think that we're getting there. There are companies working on batteries like that. But until those batteries exist, I don't think any of the electric car companies are going to be more than a niche. And I think we learned that in part from the Better Place failure.
0: So coming up to the end of the show Brian, uh, how can people get hold of your book?
1: That's the easy part. You can go to Amazon and type in my name Brian Blum. You can type totaled. You can go to my website, brianblum.com, very easy to remember, and uh, you know all the links are there and you order it. If you're, you know, in a place where, you know, Amazon is is active, you can get it in a day or two. You know, they just ship it out. Uh, and, of course, you can get it on Kindle or on iBooks or on Barnes & Noble, you know, in electronic form, you know, same day, you know, within, you know, you know, 10 seconds.
0: Right. Well, then uh, there, there you have it. Brian Blum, thank you so much for being with us on the new Blue Review and uh, mazel tov on your new book uh, Thanks, amazing uh, an interesting read worthwhile going out there uh, and getting it brings us to the end of the show for today thank you so much for everyone for listening uh, thank you to Craig for pushing all the big rat buttons Mandy who does all the production uh, and everyone at the station who helps put the show together if you want to engage with us please feel free uh, you can tweet me at Benji underscore Shulman I will happily tweet back or follow us and uh, we'll chat to you next week on the new blue review